All right, welcome everybody to episode number 54 of Collectible Live. Today is Sunday, November the 27th, 2022, and my name is Jeremy Lee. I would like to thank everyone who tuned in last time with our guest, Brett Charville of Standard Gaming. You can check out that episode on the Collectible App YouTube channel, as well as the Sports Cards Live YouTube channel. But let's bring out this week's guest. He's a former employee of the Baltimore Orioles and the Atlanta Braves. He's an industry consultant and a content creator, Danny Black. Welcome to Collectible Live, and how are you today, my friend? I am absolutely fantastic. Thrilled to be here. Long time, first time. <laughs> Sounds good, buddy. Long time listener, first time caller. Well, to welcome to everybody in the chat. If you're watching or listening, feel free to put your comments in the chat. We'll get to as many of them as we can. But Danny, I want to start this one off with your passion for the hobby. You have it. Where does it come from? I mean, I think I was born talking batting averages before I left the hospital. Um, I, grew, I I had one of those fathers who um, ended up being a CPA. He was a numbers guy. So we were always talking baseball numbers. I mean, he would bet me on Tris Speaker's lifetime batting average and diehard Baltimore fans. So we were always talking baseball, uh, Oriole and Baltimore Colts history. So it, it was you know, really cool just growing up in that environment. And I just inherited that uh, my entire life. It's really the only thing that I've consistently uh, stayed with other than my family uh, that, that, I, that I love to death. Um, so I've been very blessed. I was a dealer in the nineties and, you know, the hobby has been a part of my life. I was lucky to work for major league teams and absolutely every day of my life. I'm blessed. Right. I'm very cool. What kind of work did you do with the Braves and the Orioles? So with the Braves, I was actually there the season they opened Turner field after the Olympics. Um, and that was for those of you that know, that's the old stadium. Um, and I actually worked as a liaison with Coca-Cola with the big Coke bottle that used to be in left field, that giant Coke bottle. So I uh, worked for the Braves in the marketing side. And uh, for the Orioles, I actually ran a art and memorabilia uh, store for them in, at, at the stadium. It was the world's largest sports art gallery. Very cool. So that that ties right into what you're what you well ties right into the hobby, I, I would have to think. And and uh, you talk about art and memorabilia. We're going to talk shortly about the Art Basel uh, initiative that Collectible is doing with eBay, uh, which is pretty cool. Their display that'll be there. So we'll get to that shortly. But um, let's also talk a bit about what you do, your role in the hobby. You do, you know, today, you obviously, well, I won't say obviously for the audience, but to me, uh, you create content. You have a few different content initiatives out there that you're working on, but you're also an industry consultant. Can you just sort of explain for everybody kind of what you do, what sort of clients you have, what, what, what do you bring to your clients? Uh, first of all, when you when I started as a dealer in the early 90s, uh, it, it was a different type of environment. And so I lived through junk wax. I lived through the collapse. Um, I worked in private industry for many years before coming back a while ago. And so I've been able to help clients and, and companies in this environment shall we call it, between the pandemic and moving forward. And so guiding them and helping them be familiar with the hobby, being familiar with, with, with kind of the nuances, the thought of the, I call it the people on the ground, the, the, the collectors, and, and being familiar with all aspects of the hobby. I think sometimes it's hard 
uh, for companies when they're raising money or getting started or they get lost, you know, in their world all the time uh, to have that real 360 view and how to connect with people, you know, quite frankly, from a business standpoint. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So when I think of a hobby consultant, an industry consultant, I think of a couple of prongs. First one is, you know, servicing clients who are, like you said, corporate type of clients, companies looking to come in with a new product or service and helping them navigate the space, maybe helping them understand the personality of the hobby. You as an experienced collector and hobbyist can share with them the way the hobby may react and respond to certain initiatives, products, services, marketing strategies and campaigns you know let them this may work this didn't work this didn't work before tweak it this way i'm sure i have a feeling that's part of what you do but what about consulting collectors do you have do you have any like collector slash investors who who call on you to say hey danny should i pick up this 51 bowman willie mays psa6 or should i buy a 52 tops willie mays and a psa4 sort of thing like do you do you provide that sort of advice to people as well well, your level of research is unbelievable. Uh, yes. Um, and actually, a couple of weeks ago, I helped a client buy a 51 Bowman Willie Mays. <laughs> and, and so that, that you really uh, caught me off guard with that level of preparation. Really unbelievable. I've never been interviewed with, with, with that detailed. Uh, and that was a private sale. Uh, that was a... That was a coincidence. Let's just put that out there. <laughs> and, and so my client knows that was a coincidence. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, absolutely. I love working with private clients. Um, it's some of my best conversations about the hobby. You get to focus in maybe on a couple of cards. And you're talking about passing down a lot of times to the family. Um, and they think about their children and grandchildren. And a lot of times for them, uh, it, it's an alternative asset for them. It's instead of having classical investments, this is another way for them to have their money at work for them and have something that they really get to enjoy interacting with. So whether it was a 48, 49 leaf Jackie for a client, you know, a couple months ago or the Willie Mays, uh, whatever it may be, that that part of it is a blast. Yeah, that that would definitely be a lot of fun. Helping people spend slash invest their money into cardboard. What's better? The only thing better than that is doing it for yourself. So doing it for other people is can be quite gratifying as well. Let's uh, let's say hello. We have a few people in the chat. We have Jeremy Allen from Collectors League. Jeremy, what's going on? I believe Jeremy acts as a bit of an industry consultant as well. So great to have you on board, Jeremy. We have my buddy Darcy Ravlick from British Columbia. What's going on? Darcy says hello to you as well, Danny. And Jake Dahl, loyal viewer and listener, is with us again. Jake, welcome to the show. Let's talk a little bit, Danny, about content. We both do content, but I'd like to give you the opportunity to let the audience know kind of what you're working on. And we do have a we do have a bit of a, a common thread for content, being that I'm a former uh, host of Hobby Hotline, which which is on the, the Hobby Hotline YouTube channel every Saturday morning at, I believe, 11 a.m. Eastern. Hobby Hotline is also Tuesday nights on the Bench Clear Media YouTube channel. You've become a, a host of that program since, uh, you know, subsequent to myself leaving. But you do you do hobby hotline. What other what other uh, content pieces are you a part of? I yeah, hobby hotline is a blast. And for those of you who don't know, uh, you know, people like Jeremy and I, content creators, uh, we we just get together and uh, you know, I know you've got a great show also, and we just enjoy the camaraderie and talking about the hobby. Um, so I, I I have that. But then John Newman and I are also starting a new show called Card Menches. 
And that's going to scratch a little bit of a different creative itch where we're going to kind of uh, talk the hobby, but also talk the sports world in general. I mean, you know, we all know that, you know, today's football games might have an impact on card prices this week. And, you know, let's have some of those fun conversations and uh, let's, you know, we're not afraid to, you know, talk about an over under every so often. And uh, so we're going to, we're going to stretch our uh, minds uh to include more than just cardboard. There will be plenty of hobby talk. Uh, and then, of course, my own uh, podcast, Sports Ball, which I'm very proud of. And I get uh, guests that interest me and and basically get to do whatever I want because, uh, you know, sometimes it's just fun to have fun. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, good evening to you, Perk. Great to see you. And thanks again, uh, Jake. So let's chat a little bit about the role of content in the hobby. And obviously, you and I are... are, are I guess we're, it, you know, worthwhile. We talk about it. We both create content. We both create various different uh, programming within the hobby space. But I want to just touch on collectible strategy because you know I've been working with collectible now on Collectible Live. We're coming up on a year and a half here doing this show. Uh, but ever since I first met Ezra, who's the CEO of Collectible, I had him on Sports Cards Live, my flagship show. I had him on that. It's about two years ago right now. Two years ago, maybe a little bit more than two years ago. And he first came on and we talked about collectible and what it was, fractional ownership. But one thing that really stuck out with me when I first talked to Ezra, which really endeared me to him and the company, was that he really expressed that their strategy was to be a bit of a content hub and to share knowledge and to grow the hobby, not keep the knowledge to themselves, but to share it with a hobby, even with competitors, and get the word out there, grow the space. And I always thought that that was a real noble um, you know, initiative that they undertook. And the funny thing is that like, about six months later, they reached out to me and we created this show in collaboration. So they really put their money where their mouth is, if you will, and that he said that, and then they went and they did it. And I love when somebody, you know, not only talks the talk, but walks the walk. And I, I feel that Collectible does that. So for you, the role of content in the space, just speak to that for a few seconds. Yeah, great. And Ezra is a great example because I liked the Collectible platform um, before I met Ezra. And so I decided to just, you know, reach out and have him on my podcast. Well, as a content creator, I don't necessarily go into an interview with all the answers. I don't want, I don't want to know everything. I want to have an, an honest conversation and just talking to him and, and asking questions and, and learning about it. Uh, I felt that I, I put out one of my best episodes because we were able to talk well beyond ju just the borders of a typical, you know, conversation about a company. And so one of the roles of content creators, I think is we all come from different angles. So when we interview, you know, similar people, or we interview um, people on the same topic. I mean, all of us did a segment on the Aaron Judge home run ball. What I really enjoy is having smart conversation to lead that into another conversation. I want people to think. I want people to have the passion that I do. And that's what Ezra showed. Ezra showed that he had that passion in that, in that uh, interview I did with him. And as a content creator, to be able to show that to people who listen and watch that that to me is the best thing i can do is to pass that along and to let them see another side of some of these people that they may only see uh, small glimpses of and i get to enjoy showing that off because we really have great people in the hobby yeah no 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 doubt about it and uh there's all sorts of different types of content i i could you know 
the ho hobby content is a genre in and of itself. Within hobby content, we have different genres. I would I would uh, I would put out there as well, and uh, and it's nice to be able to kind of select what you want to watch, what you want to consume, listen to, find the find the creators that speak to you. And I think most people are doing that now. We, we're kind of like we're three years into this hobby con the ero the eruption of hobby content. I think people who take it seriously, the 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 consumers of it, have started to really uh, curate their their menu of of what they listen to and watch. So very good. And hopefully, hopefully, you know, besides bringing the news, which a lot of content creators do, hopefully there's enough uh, creators that are also bringing education, experience, passion, uh, inspiration to the, uh, to the hobby. That's something that I think you and I both strive to, to deliver. Let's move along. Let's, uh, let's touch upon startups. One of the things that I wanted you to, to bring to the audience today was you know, when you are advising your clients and you are talking about breaking into the hobby with a new product or service, what sort of advice do you, do you have some key bullets that you bring to every client in your initial discovery meeting that kind of say, you know, here's what you need to understand. Here's the, here are some of the nuances of the hobby. Like what are you, what do you, what advice do you give a startup when they first approach you in these initial discussions? 100% accurate. Uh, what First of all, I, I want to get to know the people uh, because if you don't have a good relationship with the people you work with, nothing else really matters. So I want to see that they have that passion and that they're invested in, in, into their company uh, to better the hobby, to, to add something new to the hobby. And I want to work with companies that, that are going to be an added benefit to business-wise, consumer-wise. And then the list of questions are, you know, how do we fit that bill? Uh, or, you know, are we a disruptor? Are we looking to, to get bought out? Or are we looking to self-generate our funds? And, you know, we, we get into a lot of the business side of it. What are your goals? What are your five-year goals? You know, are, are you are you giving up shares yet? Um, have You know, are you looking to go public? Um, and, and one of the things that, you know, that I worry about is if I have too many companies say, I'm looking just to get bought out by Fanatics. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, sure. So am I. Um, my, my son would like to be also, um, yes, we all would. Uh, that's not a business plan. So, you know, one, one of the things I want to look for is where are we on the business plan? And a good working relationship will be somebody who is realistic about a timetable for development, competition in the marketplace, and understanding where the industry is right now, because it does, it does shift quickly. And, um, you know, as, as Ferris Bueller said, life comes at you fast. So based on some of the experiences you've had with these, I'll call them corporate clients, the word corporate, it almost connotes big, but it doesn't have to be. It could be a, it could just be an entrepreneur who incorporated a corporation and now they're corporate and they've got a hundred dollars to go to start with. It could be very small with, with some of these corporate clients that you have met along the way and that you have done consulting with. Based on those experiences, how important is it from your perspective for someone breaking into the hobby with a new company, product, or service, how important is it for them to have had prior startup experience, business experience, entrepreneurial experience? It's a great question. I think there's two prongs in this industry, and I think you need to have uh, the startup experience without a doubt or, or somebody on your team that, to lead that. And Jeremy, you couldn't be more correct about that. The second part is you have to have a passion and a knowledge 
for the for the business and the industry you're going into. So to find somebody who who has a startup background but also has hobby experience it is challenging. So uh, the best companies are, um, and and there's major companies that have brought in new leadership recently that have uh, some people with a technical background and, and some people with more of a hobby background. And those are the two pieces, I think, the two prongs that have to go together. One without the other makes it hard to be successful, without a doubt. And have you, in, in your experiences, so actual experiences without naming any any companies, of course, have you ever met with a company that's looking to start up in the space and you just thought to yourself, you know what, this isn't going to work. So, you know, all the best, but I'm not your guy. Has that happened to you? I'll just start with that one. Well, I don't think you can ever have a bad relationship. So I like taking phone calls with people and talking to people. And, and sh- yeah, yeah, I've been approached by companies. And after the first meeting, it's clear it's, it's not a good fit professionally. Uh, a lot of these are good companies, good people. Uh, but for, for me, an added benefit and what I can do for the company or my outlook on the company moving forward is not something that I want to you know necessarily sign up to be a part of. Uh, now, some companies I will chase down. Um, I, I, I chase down center stage. I, I will say that out loud. I, I love their product um, and I reached out to them. Uh, most other companies I work with, they've approached me and then it's more of a, do I know their product? Can I get familiar with their product? And, um, you know, what can I do to help? How much do you get into the vision? Like you talked about the business plan and really you were alluding to the exit strategy when you talked about, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, you know, where their whole plan was to get bought out by fanatics. But, you know, looking past that, how important is the vision and how how creative and visionary are some of these entrepreneurs that you're working with to the point where their vision might be so grand that the hobby might not be ready for it yet? Does that happen? And when it does, what's your advice to somebody like that who might just, you know, want to keep on going and doing what they're doing? Or do you ever have to say, you know what, park this for a year and let's revisit it? Right now, I would say if I was to pull back the curtain, uh, the company's that, that are fighting in the data space right now um, that, that need pricing information and, and that need customer information and data and sales history on eBay that everybody uh, tries to get. Uh, those are the companies that you really want to uh, make sure um, they have they have a plan you know that's going to attack that exactly. Um, other companies have different approaches. So I really like somebody who can come in and you know, we have to be realistic, you know, <laughs> you know, it's going to take a certain amount of time and the hobby is going to move past you in that time. And you have to be ready for that. Or you might think you're better, but there are five other competitors. So you have to be realistic that even though you go to bed at night thinking your product's the best, um, you have to be realistic that there's competition and the marketplace may view it differently. And that's the, one of the hardest things with entrepreneurs is there's such an ownership um, and there's such a love for what they do. It, 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 you can have blinders on and, and you can uh, need to have that heart to heart conversation. And that's one of the things that one of the things of value that you're going to bring to these meetings. When you say that to when you say to the client that, you know, the market, the hobby is going to view it differently. You actually have insight and experience to be able to, to tell them that. How how much how often do you find entrepreneurs uh, and the reason I ask this is because I, I have a mentor. I actually work with him right now at, at Tag Grading, Steve Cass, our founder. And uh, he likes to say 
to uh, to myself to our team. He says, "Let's not fall in love with our story." What does that What does that sentence mean to you? Do you ever approach your clients with that same sort of thought? Like, listen, I, you've got a great idea, a nice vision, but let's not fall in love with our story. Is that something that you've ever used, or is, what does that mean to you, really? Well, I think you have to be ready to pivot and not not be afraid to make the company better, even if it doesn't align with your original vision. And the example I always give is Jeff Bezos started out to make a bookstore, an online bookstore. Well, had he stuck and said, that's my vision, I won't do anything else, uh, there would be no Amazon today. So I think you know you, you have to be willing to take your vision and say, I can make it better, I can make it bigger, I can make it more successful. And, and it's having that humbleness even if you still have the drive to, to, to separate those things. And that can be really hard. Um, and, and it can be hard emotionally. Um, I know with my own company, I, you know, I'm emotionally invested in every client or everything I do. And, and you know, and as an entrepreneur that works to build a company, uh, separating that, it, it can be hard. But, you know, they should yeah. love with their company. Okay, last question on, on, on advice for uh, startups in the hobby is going to be this one pretty open-ended question so get ready for this danny if someone were to come up to you a hobbyist a collector who is looking to uh retire or quit their their career as whatever they've been doing up until now and and go feet first into the hobby with a business but they don't even know what sort of business they want to start where do you see the most opportunity for the next you know one to ten years sort of thing within the hobby for somebody who might be, and I'm catching you off guard here, so I don't know if you're gonna have an answer, but where would, what what area would you direct somebody to say, you know, here's somewhere, somewhere I think there might be some space, might be some potential success, you know, and of course you have to have the vision, you have to have the work ethic and all, and the, the finances to, like, assume that's all there. What area, what sort of product or service would you direct somebody to take a chance with? I think almost since the beginning of modern collecting, when the first Beckett price guide came out, people have been looking for good, accurate, up-to-date pricing. And I think whoever um, perfects that, and I don't even know if that's possible to perfect. Um, if, if, if anybody can ever figure that out, I think that's been, been, been the uh, golden, golden goose for a long time. Um, and, and there are a lot of companies in the space. I mean, yeah, dozens trying to find their version of that. And, and some of them do a tremendous job. Um, but there are so many cards and there are so many cards since the beginning of time. And there's so many rare cards and there's so many cards without comps. It's a real challenge. So if somebody can ever figure out that that magic algorithm, which can't really be quantified, um, that that would be the way to go if you have the funds and the resources and the technology. And there's so many platforms and there's so many card shows and so many, you know, direct deals between hobbyists that you're never going to get that data anyway. So I agree. It's very difficult to uh, to be able to to aggregate all that data. You have a couple of the, the major players in the space that I'm aware of would be Card Ladder and Market Movers by Sports Card Investor. Those are the two that I'm aware of and that I've checked out. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's definitely something that, that, that's a big answer to the question because that takes, <laughs> that takes a lot of uh, resources to do to do something like that. So, uh, all right, good stuff. I appreciate us going down 
that rabbit hole of uh, you know advice to startups in the space. Let's switch over now to your 30,000 foot view of the hobby, a bit of a state of the hobby sort of discussion where things are at right now. Obviously, there's a lot of narrative out there. Narrative comes from a lot of the content creators or even random Instagram and Twitter accounts because nowadays everybody's got a platform. All you have to do is have an email address to have a platform. So what is your current 30,000 foot view of the hobby? Think about that because before you get there, I just do want to, I want to just say hello first to Collector's Dream. Uh, Welcome to the show. We got Love What You Collect. Also welcome to the show. And you mentioned Center Stage a couple minutes ago. We've got John Wee, who's one of the founders of Center Stage, who says that collectors are resistant to change. Tell me about it, right? They're resistant. That that is probably the 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 basic constant in this hobby for any entrepreneur to try and figure out how to overcome that. And I think one of the best ways is through education and content, which is what collectibles collectible entered into the fractional space almost as the original, you know, with a couple of other competitors that are doing it in other genres as well. But that's something that you know they're constantly dealing with. Uh, tag grading, automated grading, which I'm a part of. We're constantly we're, that's something we're dealing with. So John, who's in the biz, you know, Center Stage is a company that you are working with. It's funny. We both do some work with Center Stage. Uh, you do as well. And uh, they're a supporter of my my flagship show, Sports Cards Live. But they have an image recognition system that you 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 scan, you take your phone, you scan the, you scan the cam, you scan the card, and it will show you some pricing from eBay. So another another sort of um, price aggregator platform you know so pretty interesting collector's dreams as center stage is great and what i say you know i shout them out at the beginning of every episode i do and i say please join me in supporting these hobbypreneurs i love that word these hobbypreneurs as they as as they strive to bring new innovation to the space because i'm always going to support innovation so anyway sorry sort of off on a tangent there but with all these things said back to your thirty thousand foot view of the hobby where are we at right now? Well, you know, I think a lot of people are making comments that the, the hobby's down, prices are down, you know, I think, you know, the, the ceiling's crashing. And, and I typically take a slightly different view when I've been talking to clients or talking to companies right now. This is a time of year that traditionally is a slower time of year. So I, I think that because of the pandemic, um, there's a lot of people or, or a lot of normal cycles uh, that got broken for a year or two. And, and it's hard to remember what it was like every year before that. Um, and because we have a lot of sports in season right now, um, you don't see, a, you know, a lot of movement unless something specific, you know, really, really moves the needle. So I think normally going into the holidays, going to the end of the year, uh, before tax returns, you know, with money to spend on gifts, this has always been a downtime of year. So I want I want to take that as an important piece that we should be looking into. And then you talked about Card Ladder before. I, I look at their indexes all the time. And if you go through the past year, I mean, there are definitely areas in this hobby that are doing well. Vintage being one of them. So the thirty thousand foot view to me is. We have we have a very big technological race right now, um, and, and and a lot of companies coming in, uh, whether it's fintech companies or you know organization and database management companies, but you know most importantly we have a lot of cards that that are still being sold, 
some of them at a, at a discount right now, but a lot of them that are holding their value uh, specifically in some areas. I, I think it's a great opportunity to buy, but I think we're also leaving the junk parallel era. I've been calling it that for a couple of years. And um, when you start adding up pop reports um, and you have out of 199, out of 250, out of 499, out of 999, and you add up all of those, well, now you're really just into a short print. So I, I think, you know, the numbers have, have thrown people off during the pandemic. If you don't have that experience years before of what true population control can be. And vintage is true population control. So I think that's why it always falls back as the safety net. So you're you're not so down on where things are at. You're you you remain bullish on on the hobby as a as a a function of enjoying your life, enjoying your cards, and potentially even investing. What about the macroeconomic situation that the world is in right now? North America, interest rates, inflation. Do you do you believe that there's a correlation between the economy and the hobby? Without a doubt. And I think there's two, there's two ways to look at it. One of them is, like you said today, what is the state of the economy? And I think a lot of people right now, quite frankly, are, are, are looking for cash that they don't have that they might have had a year ago. And a lot of people are card rich and cash poor. So I think that that's forcing a lot of people to maybe sell and sell at a lower price uh, because they need more money for gas or more money for, you know, other expenses. So I think without a doubt, those two things have to be connected. Um, and my firsthand experience is, is people telling me that people trying to sell collections and telling me that they just simply, you know, put too much money into it and, and it's all tied up and they need to pay bills. You mentioned uh, the in, the indices, uh, Card Ladder has indexes that they publish and they're I'm probably automatically updated just by their data. And I've been thinking a lot about indexes or indices in the hobby lately and really are they are they the gauge that we need to rely on or should be relying on to tell us the state of the hobby from the economic state of the hobby the the investment potential of the hobby that sort of thing the reason why i, I even raise this and ask it is because when i when you look at these graphs which are all over instagram story posts and twitter i'm sure you see a lot of the same trends going on between different indices. Some are just a little bit behind or ahead of the uh, of the other, depending on the sport and you know that sort of thing. But these these indices are made up of very specific cards. Sometimes there's few cards. Sometimes there's lots of cards. But it does not include all the cards. And I wonder for myself, do I want to make decisions based on these indices, which are only showing you historical information they cannot show you the future that's just impossible and are they actually you know history is important of course but are they indicative of what's going to happen in the future i'd argue no and number two are they indicative of every like are they guiding every decision that we as hobbyists and and collectors slash investors or any any combination of that should they be guiding our decisions when they're only, you know, the, the high end indices? It's only based on the highest end cards. A lot of the graphs and charts that we see are based on cards that are five figures and up. Lots of them are like that. Lots of that narrative that we see is that where most of the hobby is dealing in that, you know, $1 to $100 card level. You know, even collectible 
is is a is a business is it, it has a it, part of its business model is is um access to the to a 52 tops mickey mantle for ten dollars you can own a piece of it that's where a lot of people are so how how integral are indices and indexes? I don't sorry, is it indices or indexes? I keep uh, keep flopping back and forth, but how I, I think you're good either way. Either way. How how integral are these indices to the common hobbyist? I think that they should be part of the soup, but they shouldn't be your the only decision you make. Um, and I think part of the reason is what, what we talked about before is where we are in data as, as, as a hobby and as an industry. Um, I, I think we're early on in that in that conversation. So the data is not perfect yet. And I equated almost to analytics and sports. You know, your, your original analytics, you know, were, were, were not perfect, but they started showing you a little bit more information than you had before, and then a little bit more information. And over time, that's built up to a lot of information. Well, I think when you look at some of these uh, indices and indexes, you are 100% correct. The cards that are on there, um, I think we need some sort of barometer for what makes that. I mean, you know, to be on the Dow Jones, there are certain parameters to, to be on there. And, and, you know, just like stocks that move on and off, there should be cards that move on and off if they don't, if they don't meet those qualifications. However, as an industry and a hobby, we have no measuring stick typically. Um, now, one of the shortcomings of anything online is you are only capturing online sales. So I, I still think we're missing every sale at a card show, every sale at a local card shop. And that's where a lot of value, I don't know if that's being reflected honestly. So that's why I think that data in those sites are fantastic. Part of the soup, not the whole soup. Yeah, no, well said. I, part of the soup, not the whole soup. I think that's really key. Maybe consider it, but don't let it be your 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 sole guiding principle or guiding data You know, towards any decision that you might make. Uh, interested to hear what the chat has to say. We've got over 40 people in here right now. So curious to know what anyone might think about this particular line of discussion that Danny and I have have uh, gone through right now. We do have a comment from JG says the whole card market graph looks like an upside down V still lots of room lower to hit pre pandemic level. So I'm going to challenge that comment because um, it's impossible to know that it's impossible to the whole card market. That's just not true. And the reason why I say that to JG is because there are some players who maybe weren't even around pre-pandemic and they're they're coming out of the gate. They're doing well. So they're just like this. Not everything is like is, is went up and came down. It's just it's just an un, it's just it's a generality. It's an untruth. And um, so I challenge the comment. That said, I do recognize JG's comment. It's a generality and it does reflect a percentage of the hobby, but it's not the whole card market. That That's just not true but it is a portion of it is like that. How significant? I don't know. There's billions of cards out there. So we don't know what that is, but the ones that trade, it, there's, it's probably uh, a significant enough portion that that's what we're seeing. JG comes back and says, okay, 75%. Well, that's at least different than the whole card market. And again, that's unprovable. We cannot quantify this. This is a complete shot in the dark that JG makes, but it's based on JG's gut, which I think is, is, is relevant and, uh, you know, valid as well. Uh, Sports MD Collector, good evening to you. Glad to have you. Curious if anyone else has any thoughts on that line of discussion that we had. While we're seeing if we get any more comments on that, Danny, let's, uh, 
let's let you talk about something fun for you. You were doing some consulting work for the Babe Ruth Sports Museum. What uh, what would you like to mention about that? Well, uh, first of all, thank you uh, for bringing that up because th- talk about passion. Being from Baltimore, the home of Babe Ruth, if people are familiar, he was born in Baltimore. Uh, he first played uh, for the Baltimore Orioles of the minor leagues. And so uh, getting to work with them and, and I'll be honest, getting to see the artifacts and seeing some of the some of the uh, pieces of the museum is really, really cool. Um, they currently uh, host, whether or not people know, the original 1914, it's the Babe Ruth minor league rookie card, of which might be the most rare uh, card uh, I've ever fallen in love with, fallen in love with. Um, it is actually on the collectible platform. Uh, it was one of their f- first items, um, but it's right at the Babe Ruth Museum. So I get to go. I mean, I was there last week and, and I got to visit and take pictures, uh, but helping them and, and they are a nonprofit plan activities and, and, and bring in speakers. And, and you talk about how important is it to educate the next generation on the history. So um, I find that very cool. Yeah, and uh one of the other things that I definitely want to say is if you like these types of things, I own shares of that 1914 Baltimore News Babe Ruth. I cannot afford, you know, I think the market cap right now is $7 million. Sure, if I hit that billion-dollar lottery, I, I would have made a good play at it. But short of that, um, I really enjoy getting to go and look at it and say, you know what? So I, I got a piece of that. Um, so th- that's one of the cool things for me. And, and that being said, getting to just support a good cause like the Babe Ruth Museum um, is really special. And I will say, if you come to Baltimore, um, Jeremy, I will give you a private tour. Uh, it, it is phenomenal. I'm, I'd love to take you up on that, Danny, for sure. Uh, Collector's Dream says the most expensive card, Ruth Rookie, when it sells. Yeah, likely, likely, likely to be. Time will tell. I mean, I do think uh, a PSA... 10 Mickey Mantle would would be the absolute beast of a, of a sale. And I wonder what happens the next time the PSA 8 trimmed Honus Wagner sells that I believe in, in is in Ken Kendrick's collection uh, at the moment. Be curious to see what that sells for. Are we going to see a nine-figure sale of a sports card when either of those come out? I'm talking 100 million or more. Uh, those are the two that could get there. That's a big number. I think I've, I've heard speculation that a PSA 10 Mantle 52 tops Mickey Mantle would sell for 50 million. I believe that. I could see that happening. 100 million is a lot of money. <laughs> 50 million is a lot of money. Who are we kidding? But what do you think? Uh, from what I've heard, this is not the only Ruth News American that uh, has or will change hands in the next year or two. Um, and I, I, I think that. There's only, I think, three in circulation that people are really uh, confident about, maybe four. And uh, if, if another one comes out, um, I, I think you're going to see that push the Mantle record that was just set, if not blow it away. Yeah, yeah. And the Mantle record was for, uh, I believe, an SGC 9.5 that sold for $12.6 million. Is that that's the one we're talking about? Yep. Yeah. Right on. Uh, LA Collection says the only other nine-figure rookie card is yours, Jeremy. <laughs> Wouldn't that be crazy? Thanks, uh, LA Collection. John Wee makes this comment: says publishers and grading companies took a lot of money. By publishers, I think he means manu- card manufacturers. Took a com- so publishers and grading companies took a lot of money out of collectors' pockets by charging market prices and upcharges. Panini charged two thousand dollars for Lamelo Ball 
uh, rookie year hobby prism and 1000 for Donra. So just a comment on, on state of the hobby and I guess where some of the money is going, where there might be some leakage in the hobby where, you know, money is leaving within uh, transactions. Uh, you tilt your head. What's your thought? Vintage over the last year and pre-war vintage are both up. So I think, you know, we just have to be careful with the difference between maybe prospecting and active players versus retired players. There's always a difference in the way the market reacts. And, and I just want to clarify that that's definitely something to be when you buy cards and you invest in current players, far more volatile than, than retired players. And as has been said many times, um, you know, in, in content by myself, by you, I'm sure really you're hobbyist view of the financial state of the market right now and i'm talking about the, the the card values it's really based on your entry point when you came in if you came in at the peak of the boom which was like the 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 third the last three quarters of 2021 if you came in you know at all in 2021 you may not be feeling so good because values have come down since then but if you've been around in this hobby you've been holding cards for you know five plus years you're still you're your if you were to sell everything and realize the values you'd still be out you'd still probably make a lot of money on your holdings on the cards that you hold uh not as much as if you sold them during that that peak but of course you know not all not everybody can actually time the peaks but if you if, if you were to sell your cards now and you came in in the middle of 2021 you're going to take a pretty large loss if you were buying all those cards that were being that the values were pumped right up the lebrons the kobe's the you know the jordan rookies all those sorts of things the trouts you know that type of stuff so interesting there uh let's see what perk has to say he says if there are more collectors post pandemic now who are staying in the hobby but the market continues to incrementally drop do those meet to create a floor or has that already happened that's like such a good question such a good cuz I like what I like Danny about about perk's question here is that he's not only looking at one aspect, one one influence on on the market. He's looking at two. He's looking at you know what what are what's being bought and sold, but also are is the foundation of the hobby bigger now than it was pre-pandemic? And this is something I think is really important that we have attracted a lot of new people to the hobby, or the hobby has had a lot of newcomers come in, and they're not all going to stick around. Some of them are going to have a bad experience and leave. But some of them, a percentage, we can't quantify. We can guess, just like JG has taken a guess. Maybe 50%, maybe 25%, maybe 80% are going to stick around. And that should, I believe, help counterbalance that thought that maybe we do, maybe the the indices do return back to pre-pandemic levels. Anything you'd like to add or, or, or kind of say to round that out? Yeah, and, and it's something we talked about before. I think this is similar to the junk wax era, where, where you are going to have some people that, that got in too high and, and are not going to financially be able to make it a business. But let's separate collectors from business. Collectors, um, if you really want to collect, don't overpay as an investment. Um, know who you are and, and know what your goal is. Because um, if you've collected and you've bought stuff you like and you didn't overpay because you were investing, then you should have a collection that you love right now that, that should you know be something you can enjoy uh, through the ups and downs of, like you said, of the individual card prices. All comes down to horizon. You know, I've got a 25-year horizon. That's my that's my plan. 
I don't really worry about the ups and downs day to day, week to week, month to month, because I'm not going to sell my my investment worthy pieces for 25 years. That that's the plan. So yeah, you have if it depends on horizon, but there's a lot of people whose horizon is literally next week. Literally, what's going to happen in next Sunday's football games? That's what the decisions are being made upon. I'm not, and listen, I don't mean, I'm not criticizing or judging it each to their own approach it how you will. The hobby has room for ev- for everybody except those committing fraud. And so do that. If, do that. If you'd like, if you'd like to, but if you want to be able to save your mental state and, and, you know, and really ride it out, I think it's important. Um, and I don't mean to project my approach on everybody, but it works psychologically and, economically as well to have a longer uh a a, a longer horizon and that would go for any blue chip investment and then now i i mentioned blue chips it's you know it all depends if you're buying established hall of famers or if you're buying up you know this the hottest rookie you have to decide how risk averse are you how much how, how 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 much of a stomach do you have for all the volatility that comes with you know the week to week football and basketball and so forth. Well, I'm first of all bringing you on my next consultation with a client because that's pretty much the speech I give exactly. Um, it, 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 and it's a, it's just 100% true. Um, you know, n- know what you love, know what your goals are. Um, you know, if, know what know what your horizon is, and uh, you can get some really cool stuff. And I don't care whether or not you PC your favorite team. Or you know you're investing investing in Hall of Fame vintage. Um, just just know what you're doing and have fun with it. Um, but the other point I wanted to bring up is I think right now a lot of people are worried about losing money that they put into it. And from a macroeconomic standpoint, there's actually a theory that selling it at any value is better to reinvest that into new product. And so. Uh, since we are looking at the 30,000 foot view, um, I, I do want to bring that macroeconomic theory out there. Um, so I think there should be more action in the market. I think if you are sitting on cards, don't be afraid to sell them. And if you want to buy cards, don't be afraid to buy them. And what you just said is advice that every business that carries inventory follows. If you have stale inventory, liquidate it, get rid of it, sell it. Recover as much money as you can. Take that money. You may have paid $10 and sold for three. Take that $3 and do your best to build that back up to 10 because your stale inventory, chances are, won't make its way back to $10 to a $10 value on its own. So be an entrepreneur. Be smart. Figure out how to be creative. Figure out how to take that liquidation value and, and reinvest it and turn it back into the amount that you are trying to to save and not lose. That's that is such good advice and that's one of the problems that there's so many bad this is going to sound terrible but there's so many bad business people that are card dealers because they won't they won't reduce the prices on their cards. And maybe they maybe it's their own collection so they don't feel the need to 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 move them. That's fine. That's fine, but the the hobby the hobby could use a course of just a business. Some people in the hobby take a, a business course. I think they would enjoy and do a lot better in the long run and probably move more cards into appreciative collections. You know, somebody might want your card. You pay 10 for, they're willing to pay three, which is the fair price. You're not going to sell it to them. And now you're, you're, you're kind of 
not that you owe them anything because you don't, but you're withholding or you're not allowing them to find that, to add that card to their collection, which is going to make them very happy. Put $3 in your pocket that you can now reinvest and find a way to build it back up to 10. So by sitting there and not adjusting your prices, you're doing, you're, you're doing damage to your own bottom line and you're, you're, I want to say you're doing some damage to the overall hobby as well. And I think I think that applies. I, I got to think that through, but I think that makes some sense. Thoughts? Uh, yeah, no, I think not that any one person is affecting the hobby, but repeating that by the thousands is what affects the hobby. So, so I think you can say that safely. Um, we're not blaming any one person for the entire hobby. Um, but I think that's that's a great point. And, you know, what, what somebody has to look at is what is better on your example, that $3 or $0. It's not $3 or $10. $10 is now not in the equation. That, 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 that's off the table. $10 was last year. So today our conversation is $3 or $0. And, and that's um, where I think the hobby is different than a lot of businesses because there's an emotional attachment. But I like this prospect. You know, he's going to come back healthy. I still feel, you know, and you talk yourself into oh, that $3 card will be a $10 card again. No, it's not. That guy can't hit. He's done. And, you know, so you, you do need a little reality. And, and like you said, a business sense. And dealers are just as guilty as, as any other collector. Um, I think you're right about that. Yeah. You do see some very skilled dealers at card shows and elsewhere who understand this concept. And they're the ones that are super busy at shows, constantly turning over their inventory. And when you do that, the added benefit of, of reducing your price to move something out, it's like, first of all, don't be scared to take a loss. That is the best move a lot of the time. But by doing that, you're turning over your inventory and you're bringing in more money, allowing you to buy more collections to have new inventory. So the next time you're at that same card show, you're not going to have those the same attendees just kind of walk by and saying it's the same guy with the same stuff month after month, year after year. I hear that so much about some dealers. It's the same stuff, show after show. Have new inventory. Get those people coming back. Repeat business. It's going to snowball. It's by far the better strategy than holding out to get $10 on your $3 card or whatever and however those numbers fall out. Let's go to a couple comments if you're good. Uh, JG says, card dealers this weekend at my local show were in La La Land with their pricing. Yeah, they they need they need a, just a, I don't know, a head shake or something. LA Collection says, don't fall in love with your story. Also, don't fall in love with your stale inventory from a dealer who has thousands of cards on eBay. I agree 100%. I'm with you, LA Collection. Hodges says getting a grasp on what sunk cost is, is very important and helps take emotional aspect out of your decisions. 100 sunk, exactly. If, sunk cost is something that should not be recoverable. Almost in, inherent in the, in, the, in the definition of a sunk cost is like, it's gone. You're, you're not going to recover it. You can often recover a portion of your sunk cost with the, in, in cards and reinvest it. That's a, that's a pretty cool uh, kind of benefit or, or just, aspect of of sports cards as inventory sometimes your you know perishable inventory it's, it's it's worth zero sports cards for the most part are not perishable i guess maybe after 150 years they become perishable but uh anything you'd like to add to that before we get on to our our last topic um number one the gum is perishable so be careful and number two um i yeah no i think the sunk cost is i use the example of top loaders 
just because top loader sold for a hundred dollars a pack during the pandemic um, d- d- doesn't mean you can resell them now at that price. So, so and nobody argues with that. And if you use that example, apply it to the cards as well. Yeah. Makes good sense. Okay. Uh, last thing I wanted to talk about was a new initiative, a partnership that collectible has entered into with eBay. Um, so I'm going to actually share my screen and just show this email uh, briefly to everybody and to you, Danny. So this is the culture is collectible email, a uh, collectible and eBay announce a partnership. So I'm just going to scroll through. You can see um, collectible and eBay announced multi-pronged partnership, starting with art Basel. Uh, so what they're basically doing is there's the scope art show in Miami, Florida. that's coming up here in a couple of days. Collectible and eBay will jointly display iconic items from assets on collectible slated for the eBay vault, key pieces, legendary rapper, Snoop Dogg. I'm a, I love Snoop Dogg, by the way. Uh, auction inventory, sneakers, comics, video games, and more. So pretty interesting what, what uh, collectible is always creative and looking for ways to grow the pie. Here's the website for the Scope Art Show in Miami, Miami Beach, November 29th to December 4th. If you are in the area, be sure to check it out. I would love to go, but I'm just not going to be in the area. And then finally, Collectible has launched their eBay uh, selling account. And as you can see, 21 followers. I'm going to actually save that seller right now myself. So encourage people to go ahead and, and do that. And you can see some of the fine assets that are on the page uh, here we have some art by my friend Andy Friedman, uh, one of the great sports hobby uh, artists, and a lot of really cool pieces that have been in the news and that are on the platform are being offered for sale in on the eBay platform right now. Another aspect of what they are doing, uh, collectible and and eBay, is that uh, they'll be curating the Mint Collective high end auction together, which is a pretty cool. Uh, initiative, I think. The Mint Collective will be, uh, it's going to be the end of March, beginning of April of next year. And Collectible and eBay are going to co-curate an auction. And I don't know if there's going to be a live aspect to it or not at the Mint Collective, like with people holding up their placards and, you know, making bids. And then there being like the online portion. I'm not sure. I can't, I'll, I'll certainly be at the Mint Collective. So look forward to uh, to seeing what that'll be like. But at the at Art Basel here coming up in Florida, uh, there will be assets on display and uh, available for purchase on on eBay's uh, on Collectibles eBay site. So be sure to check that out if you're in the area. And just excited to see what else comes out of that. Danny, any you're sort of in that area. Any comments on on the Art Basel uh, eBay Collectible partnership? Yeah, my whole family is from uh, down in that area, and my brother and sister-in-law, my sister-in-law is an artist, so Art Basel is huge in their world and huge down in South Florida. So if you've never been to Art Basel, uh, and Scope is a part of that, um, it's an unbelievable experience. And uh, Collectible, actually, great idea. They're going to fit right in with with some of their stuff. Um, Also, I got to tell you, how cool is that auction going to be? When collectible and eBay get to team up to pick items, um, <laughs> I just can't wait to see what that catalog is going to look like. Uh, I, I, I putting them together, you're going to see some really cool stuff. It'll be pretty cool, and I wonder if if they will have some of the shareholders of certain assets on the collectible platform vote to put items at auction. That'll be interesting. There's at least that is an outlet for actually, you know, selling these assets and liquidating your shares if that's something that you want to do uh, i assume that, that would go to vote but we'll definitely see the other thing i wanted to quickly mention is that 
art ba- I don't know anything really about art basil except what I've learned through collectible, but I believe it's about art. And I like that the collectible is getting involved in that and bringing the sports collectibles to that uh, platform because there's so much talk and appreciation for sports cards in the last few years as being art, being this generation's art. A lot of people like you and me and others that, that you know, our fellow hobbyists, we have no interest. I mean, except for the financial value, we have no interest in in hanging, uh, you know, an eight figure painting in our house or even maybe, you know, two hundred dollar paintings in our house. We, we like sports cards and, and memorabilia for that matter. And I think there's a big movement towards uh, people appreciating, appreciating the artistic value, the art, the, just the artistry in a lot of these cards, especially the vintage, like to me, these vintage cards, the 48 Leaf Jackie Robinson, the 53 Tops Willie Mays, my favorite, one of my favorite cards of all time. Having a 53 Tops Willie Mays or a 52 Tops Mantle, you know, painted, hanging on your wall, I'd much rather have that than, you know, a Picasso or a Rembrandt who I didn't know these guys. And I never watched them paint, you know, as in I never watched them play. So I'd rather have a big sports card hanging on my wall. Thoughts on that, Danny? Well, I, as you know, um, I, I love sports art in general. I used to manage a sports art gallery. So, you know, I think America is tied to, you know, sports art, whether it was Norman Rockwell or Leroy Neiman. I mean, over the years, I mean, you know, we didn't think about them as sports artists, but some of the most iconic sports images have come from their brushes. So um, I, I think easily the Jackie, you, you you got to go first. That wasn't fair. You took the, you took the real good one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these are true pieces of art. Artists have replicated these cards before, so we, they have been turned into, into art. And I would love nothing more than to have a, you know, my whole wall covered in sports art. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. On theme with collectible, looking to just, you know, share knowledge, spread content, grow the pie. Collector's Dream says Art Basel is like the Super Bowl of art. People come from all over the world. Goes on to say, I live in South Florida, been to Art Basel. The reason why I say that is because. This just tells me like Ezra and the collectible team, they've got vision, right? They're by by taking these sports cards and memorabilia, the, these valuable collectibles, we're calling them assets, and displaying them at Art Basel. I mean, because and I didn't realize that Art Basel is the Super Bowl of art, it is now going to expose people from all over the world to these pieces. And that is a, a method, it's one channel towards growing the hobby so kudos to them for having that vision and really putting up putting out the effort and the resources to do so one of the things i think people forget is that fractional ownership goes back to horses and wine for hundreds of years so yeah the concept's not new we can just have a lot more fun with the with the assets right now They're, they're they're it's much more fun to own a fractional portion of a sports card or piece of memorabilia than it is to own a fractional ownership of a company where you don't even know who the managers are. You don't even know what they're doing day to day. You just buy the stock because you buy the stock or it's part of a, an index fund you're invested in. So you have a bit more knowledge and control. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're right. Fractional, everything's fractionalized nowadays. I, mean, I, I heard someone say, a pizza. If you take a slice of pizza, it's fractional. You're getting one eighth, one eighth of that pizza. No, get your own. I want the whole pizza to myself. I want to hold it. I want to hold the whole pizza in my hand, you know? 
but vacation ownership, the stock market is a fraction. It's all fractional. So um, speaking of that, let's end with this question for you. And I think, I think you've mentioned it, but I'll just ask it. Uh, I'll ask it forth, right? Where do you see, how do you see fractional ownership and the hobby fitting in as we move forward? I think that we're in the top of the first in fractional ownership um, in the hobby. So I think we're going to, we've had our early adopters. And now I think what, uh, what Collectible and some other companies are figuring out is those prime assets are going to be loved by, by investors and collectors till the end of time. So you're seeing the quality of the assets just become so premium now that I think that's really been the, the growth in that top of the first inning. And where it goes from here, whether it's eBay and, and getting that and getting exposure at Art Basel, I, I think we're really seeing the development. And I'm very high on it, if that if you can't tell from that. Yeah, well, I appreciate the comments. I think I think it's you know we're 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 still early in it, and uh, but it just it makes so much sense to me as time goes by. It's not for everybody. I think that's obvious. A lot of people just might not be interested in it. But but those people, I wonder, do they hold shares in corporations as well? I, you know, it's it's apples to oranges, so not a fair comment. But uh, Perk says I have that problem too. I want the whole pizza, <laughs> right? Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, with that, Danny, I think we're. Uh, think we're ready to wrap this up um yeah we're gonna we're gonna wrap up this episode that was that was too fast uh, you, I know. You, you you promised a full hour that was like 10 minutes i know it, it, go, it goes by fast we, we, we passed the hour mark this is a great uh, great discussion so i thank you for your uh, for your time and sharing your your knowledge and your experience uh, within the hobby with the collectible live audience everybody watching thank you for joining thank you for engaging in the chat you can follow danny on instagram and twitter i believe at sports balt use balt is short for baltimore at sports balt you can follow me on instagram at j lee underscore sports cards live and of course if you have not yet you can download the collectible app in the app store and check out what fractional ownership in the hobby and the hobby space is all about And with that, everybody have a great week ahead. We'll see you next weekend. Same time, same place, new guest. Danny, thanks again. This episode is over. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.